Let's pray as we go into the Word of God this morning. Father, thank you for the opportunity to open up your Word now, and I'm asking that your Spirit will direct our time and open our hearts and our minds to hear the message from Isaiah that you have for us today. And then not just to hear it, but Father, I pray that there would be something of a life change that takes place, something that will encourage us or challenge us or draw us closer to your heart to trust you more. We present ourselves, Father, to you and do not take lightly what your Holy Spirit will accomplish in these next moments together. I pray in Christ's name, amen. The name Florence Chadwick has probably been lost in the annals of uh, sports history. She was the first woman to swim across the English Channel both ways. And back in, on July 4th in 1952, she uh, attempted to accomplish another swimming marvel, and that was to swim from Catalina Island to uh, Los Angeles or to the California coast. Uh, it wasn't so much, it was a 22-mile, something like that, swim, and it wasn't so much the distance, but it was the fact that the Pacific Ocean, the bone-chilling cold, uh, would work against her. And it also happened to be that that particular morning as she slipped into the water, uh, um, a, a foggy mist hung over the whole region. She could not see where she was swimming. She couldn't see the end, the goal. Fifteen hours later, she stopped. And she told a reporter afterwards, she says, look, I'm not excusing myself, but she said, if I just could have seen the land, I think I might have made it. But the fog, the mist, the bone-chilling cold kept her from doing that. Well, she attempted it again uh, shortly after that. Once more, the cold waters of the Pacific worked against her, and also on that day, a, a mist, a foggy mist had come in, and she, again, could not see the land. But this time, she made it to the shore. In fact, she made it in record time. She... Um, even beat the men's record by almost two hours. The difference? Well, she said, each stroke I took, I could see the land. Oh, not with my eyes, but I knew it was there. And just a few more strokes, I knew I'd be there. Against overwhelming odds, against the ability to see, the light at the end of the tunnel, it turned out that it wasn't a headlight of a train in life, it was reality. It's a definition of faith, a definition of faith. It's an unwavering confidence in something that we can't see, yet we know it's there. Now, we're studying the book of Isaiah, but I want to start this morning in the book of Hebrews, and just a, a couple of verses here in Hebrews, I've got them up on the screen. Hebrews 11 kind of defines faith, gives us a description of faith. And it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it the men of old gained approval. The King James says, faith is the substance of things hoped for. The evidence of things not seen. That word assurance or substance of things hoped for is a Greek word, hypostasis. In fact, it was used over in chapter 1 
of Hebrews to describe Jesus Christ. It says in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory, the exact representation of his nature, the exact representation, the express image. That word is the word hypostasis. It's the word assurance of things hoped for. It's the word the substance of things hoped for, the exact representation. Jesus was not a figment of someone's imagination. In reality, he was God. Now, the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying faith, faith takes the promises of God that are yet to be shown, promises of God in the future, and you are so assured of those promises, it's like taking the promises of the future and pulling them into the present, into the now, as if they're being fulfilled right now. It takes the promises of the future, and the reality of that is so palpable, it's so real, it's in the now. That's what faith is. One author put it, faith has its, at its core a massive sense of certainty. A massive sense of certainty. The writer of the book of Hebrews adds there in verse 2, it is also the conviction of things not seen. The evidence of things not seen. So faith takes that which we cannot see with the senses. We cannot know, even experience with our senses. It takes what is not seen and brings it into the now. It makes it real. It convinces us it's real, even though we can't see it. Now, that's, that's a powerful word about faith. Faith is seeing what is yet to come, but it's so real. It's the substance. It's the exact representation of what is real, and we bring it into the present, take, take that future and bring it into the present. It is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen, like what? Well, the Bible tells us that Christ is coming again. We hope for Christ's return. It's called the blessed hope. And faith has the eyes to say, I don't see that. I've never experienced that. I haven't seen Christ return. It hasn't happened yet. Yet it says it's going to happen. And faith is so assured. It's so convinced of that future event. It's like you take that future event of Christ coming, of the heavens opening, of the trumpet sounding, and you bring it into the now and we live right now as if it's almost unfolding before our very eyes. That's faith. It's taking the hope of the resurrection. I've never seen anybody rise from the dead. I've never seen a resurrected person. But the Bible says Jesus is the first fruits of the resurrection. All those who are in Christ will be raised to glory. We don't see that. That's something in the future. But faith has the eyes that say that takes that future event, it grabs it and brings it into the now. We're so assured of the resurrection. It's as if it's happening right now before our eyes. That's faith. It's the hope of that Jesus is going to set up his kingdom on earth one day, that he's going to right every wrong. He's going to reign supreme on this earth. That hasn't happened yet. Read the newspapers recently. It's not happening now. But it's going to. It's something in the future. And faith is the substance, it's the conviction, it's the evidence of things not seen. It takes that future idea that Christ is going to reign supreme on this earth and brings it into the now. And we look at it and we're so assured of it 
We have such faith that it's going to happen. It's as if it's happening right now because we're so convinced of it. That's faith. And in verse 2, the writer says that faith is rewarded. He said, for by it the men of old gained approval. God is pleased. God is delighted when we trust him at his word, take him at his word. And he gives approval to those who respond to him in faith. In fact, it says in verse 6 of Hebrews 11, without faith it's impossible to please him. God is pleased when we live our lives in such a way that even though we don't see and haven't experienced the promises yet, we take that which is future, we grab it, we bring it into our now, and we are so assured and so convinced of it, we live in light of it in the now. Now, again, we're studying the book of Isaiah. Isaiah was prophesying in the 8th century B.C., some 700 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene. And during that time of Israel's history, as we've been studying the book of Isaiah, there was a a major crisis of faith happening. A major crisis of faith. Chapter 6 of Isaiah, Isaiah told us that in the year King Uzziah died, and Uzziah was a good, godly king, and in the year that he died, he said, I saw the Lord. Isaiah had a vision of the enthroned Christ But Ahaz, the grandson of Uzziah, when he took over the throne in Jerusalem, he was a godless king. He was a wicked king, and he was a faithless king. He put his faith in everything other than the God of heaven. He put his faith in foreign alliances, in his own ability to figure out life. It says in chapter 2 of Isaiah... Come, house of Jacob, let's walk in the light of the Lord. For you have abandoned your people, the house of Jacob, because they are, they are filled with influences from the east. They are soothsayers like the Philistines. They strike bargains with the children of foreigners. Their land has also been filled with silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land has also been filled with horses, and there's no end to their chariots. Their land has been filled with idols. They worship the work of their hands and that which their fingers have made. Isaiah is saying, look, what's your faith in? It isn't in the Lord God most high. It's in the foreign alliances that you've made. It's in, it's in your own wealth. It's in your own military strength and power. It's in the things that you have made and constructed. It's in false gods. You have put your faith in everything else except the Lord God most high. In chapter 7, God told Isaiah to go and and meet with King Ahaz. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah, go now and meet Ahaz. You and your son Shirajah shuv at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take care, be calm, have no fear, don't be faint-hearted. And then in verse 9, if you will not believe, you surely will not last. If you will not stand in faith, says Isaiah, you're not going to stand at all. So take a deep breath, Ahaz. Consider God. Don't put your faith anywhere else. Don't try to make some alliance with the Assyrians. Don't look to the east, to the Babylonians. 
Look up to God. Because if you do not believe, you're not going to last. But as we've seen, King Ahaz didn't listen to Isaiah. The people of Israel or Judah did not listen to God, and they continued to trust in those foreign alliances. They continued to live their life and try to figure it out and, and make their plans to, for their own safety and well-being. The problem in Isaiah's day, I guess just like it is in our day, is that those people did not know God, and therefore they couldn't trust him. Now we come this morning in our study of Isaiah to chapter 13. And I'm going to do something today that um, I, I normally wouldn't do, but Isaiah is a big book, 66 chapters, and I would like to get it done before that kingdom of Christ is set up here on earth. And this, there's a section here in Isaiah from chapter 13 through chapter 23, 11 chapters, that I think is a, a, a single unit of thought. So uh, if you've got time today, we'll be out of here by noon, I'm sure, and uh, we're, we're going to look at these 11 chapters, 13 through 23. Notice chapter 13, verse 1. It begins with the words, the oracle, or some translations, the burden concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw. The burden, the oracle concerning Babylon. Now, 10 times in the next 11 chapters, 10 times in the next 11 chapters, that, that little phrase is going to be used. The oracle, the burden of and another nation is going to be mentioned. And these 11 chapters are chapters in which Isaiah is delivering a prophetic message of judgment against 11 nations, Babylon, Assyria, Philistia, Moab, Syria, Ethiopia, or Cush, Egypt, Edom, Arabia, and Tyre, and of course, Israel and Jerusalem. It is a message that is burdensome. It's a burden. That's why some of our translations use that word. It's a burdensome message of judgment against these nations. Let me give you some samples of that. Let's keep reading in chapter 13. This oracle, this burden against Babylon in verse 2, left up a standard on the bare hill. Raise your voice to them. Wave the hand that they may enter the doors of the nobles. I have commanded my consecrated ones. I have even called my mighty warriors, my proudly exalted ones, to execute my anger. A sound of tumult on the mountains like that of many people, a sound of the uproar of the kingdoms, of nations gathered together. The Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle, and they're coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons, the Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. Now, this is a judgment against Babylon, the nation of Babylon. Go over to chapter, uh, same chapter, verse 17. Behold, I'm going to stir up the Medes, the Medo-Persian empire, the Medes, against them who will not value silver nor take pleasure in gold. Their bows will mow down the young men. They will not even have compassion on the fruit of the womb, nor will their eye pity children. 
the Babylon and Babylon, the beauty of the kingdoms, the glory of the Chaldeans' pride will be as when God overthrew Sodom and Gomorrah. The burden, the oracle of judgment against Babylon. Go over to chapter 15. Another example. Chapter 15, verse 1. This is the burden of judgment, the oracle against the Moabites. The oracle, the burden concerning Moab. Surely in a night, Ar of Moab is devastated and ruined. Surely in a night, Ker of Moab is devastated and ruined. They have gone up to the temple, to Dibon, even to the high places to weep. Moab wails over Nebu and Medeta. Everyone's head is bald. Every beard is cut off. In their streets, they have girded themselves with sackcloth. On their housetops and in their squares, everyone is wailing and dissolved in tears. Judgment was coming to the Moabites. Look over in chapter 16. Verse 6, we have heard of the pride of Moab, an excessive pride. Even of his arrogance, pride, and fury, his idle boasts are false. And then verse 7 says, therefore Moab shall wail. Everyone of Moab shall wail. Judgment was coming. God, through Isaiah, is delivering these oracles of judgment. Look at chapter 17, verse 1. This is an oracle concerning Damascus. That was the capital city of Syria, or the ancient word was Aram. Behold, Damascus is about to be removed from being a city and would become a, a fallen ruin. Judgment was coming. Go over to chapter 19, verse 1. The oracle concerning Egypt. Behold, the Lord is riding on a swift cloud and is about to come to Egypt. And the idols of Egypt will tremble at his presence and the heart of the Egyptians will melt within them. Because judgment was coming. The burden, the oracle against Egypt. You go to chapter 22. This is the oracle against Judah against God's chosen people, against Jerusalem. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. What is the matter with you now? That you have all gone up to the housetops. You who are, were full of noise, you were boisterous town, you exultant city. In other words, you once had such confidence, such pride. You were boisterous. Your slain were not slain with a sword. Nor did they die in battle. Verse 3 says... All your rulers have fled together. They have been captured without the bow. All of you were found, were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. Therefore, verse 4, I say, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. God is saying, my heart is broken. I'm weeping for my people, for, for Jerusalem. For the Lord God, verse 5, the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of armies, has a day of panic, of subjugation and confusion in the valley of vision, a breaking down of the walls and a crying to the mountains. Elam took up the quiver with the chariots and infantry and horsemen. This is Assyria. And Kir 
uncovered with shield. And verse 7, then your choicest valleys were full of chariots. And the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate. In other words, in the valley of vision, Jerusalem was surrounded by foreign armies. And he removed the defense of Judah. In that day, you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. You weren't depending on God. Verse 9, and you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many, and so you collected the waters of the lower pool. And then you counted the, the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the walls. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of, of the old pool. But you didn't depend on him who made it. By the way, if any of you have ever been to Israel, and it looks like in, in December of 2019, we've got another trip that's going to be going. But if some of you may have walked the tunnel of, of Hezekiah. This is what it's referring to. The Assyrian hordes had come and surrounded Jerusalem. Hezekiah had, had made provisions for water to be brought in, in these special uh, tunnels, and, and they had torn down houses to refortify the walls. They were all prepared. Nothing wrong with being prepared, except God said there, but you didn't depend on him. Verse 12, therefore in that day the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, to wearing of sackcloth. Judgment was going to come. Now, what is basically happening in these oracles, in these 11 chapters? And there's, I do hesitate to, to go quickly over some of these chapters uh, because there's some wonderful verses in between there, but I, I just want to step back this morning and see this as a, as a whole, this section, chapters 13 through 23. What is going on with these oracles, these 11 chapters of judgment? I think simply this. God is making a statement in these 11 chapters. And he's telling his people of the utter foolishness, the utter bankruptcy to put their trust in anything or anyone other than God himself. There was a crisis of faith going on among the people of Israel. They had forgotten God. Chapter 1 reminded us they have abandoned the Lord God. Their first thought was, how can we figure this out? Their first line of defense was, we can figure, let's make a foreign alliance. Let's figure this out. And God is trying to say to these people, it makes no sense to put your trust in the nations of the world. Babylon, Assyria, alliances with Egypt. It makes no sense. It's utter foolishness because the Lord God has determined their destiny. And he's going to judge those nations, including his own people. What these 11 chapters teach us is that God is more powerful than any nation, than any earthly king, than any army, than any pagan god. He is the Lord God Almighty. And he's moving in history towards a goal of humbling the proud. There's a day coming 
It's one of the phrases that's repeated in chapter 13 and 14. There is a day of the Lord that's coming, and it's, the day of the Lord is a day of judgment for the nations. It's a prophetic word against the nations of Isaiah's day. It's a prophetic judgment against a coming future day, the day of the Lord. And eventually, God Almighty will establish his righteous kingdom on earth where he alone will be exalted. He alone will receive worship. And so God is communicating to his people, so trust me. Trust me now. Put your faith in me and me alone. Stop depending on anything but me. This is the message of chapters 13 through 23. You want to put your trust in foreign alliances? It's a dead-end street because I'm going to judge those nations. And when it's all the dust is settled, it'll be me and me alone. So trust me. See, that's, I think, the question that is being asked here in these chapters, in these 11 chapters. Can God be trusted? And these chapters answer that question by saying, from the east to the west, from, from Babylon to the east, all the way through chapter 23, Tyre, the nation of Tyre, the oracle, the burden against Tyre, whale, those ships of Tarshish, Tyre is destroyed without house or harbor. From the east, Babylon, to the westernmost nation, Tyre on the Mediterranean, and every nation in between. All nations will stand accountable before the only wise and holy God. God rules the destiny of the nations, and one day he will call them into account. Who do you want to trust? God will assemble the nations even in the future. All the nations will be held accountable, even the United States of America. Where are you going to put your trust? Where will your faith be placed? Now back up to chapter 14. In chapter 14, verse 24, it's a word against Assyria, but it summarizes, I think, this, this message that God is communicating through Isaiah. Verse 24, it says, The Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, has sworn, saying, Surely just as I have intended, so it has happened. Just as I have planned, so it will stand. To break Assyria in my land, and I will trample him on my mountains, then his yoke will be removed from them, and his burden removed from their shoulder. Verse 26, This is the plan devised against the whole earth, this is the hand that is stretched out against all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has planned it. And who can frustrate it? And as for his stretched out hand, who can turn it back? There is a sovereign God ruling the affairs of this world. Even though for a time... He has allowed the, the evil one, Satan, 
for a time, a, a certain measure of, of, of dominion for the whole world right now lies in the grasp of the evil one. But Isaiah is saying, make no mistake, God ultimately is in charge, and whatever he plans, it comes across, it happens. No one, nothing can frustrate what God determines will happen. Proverbs 21, the king's heart is in the hand of the Lord, and like rivers of water, he turns it wherever he wishes. The wonderful story of Dan, in Daniel chapter 4 of King Nebuchadnezzar, who pompously, in his, in his self-centered pride, elevated himself above all gods, and then God struck him down. Remember the story? And he became like an animal. And when he came to his senses, he was able to acknowledge the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind, and he bestows it on whomever he wishes. Nebuchadnezzar, the most powerful man of the world at that time, struck down by the hand of God because God bestows it on whomever he wishes. God does it. Turn to me to the chapter 21 here of Isaiah. Just to give an example of this, Isaiah chapter 21. Isaiah explains again, goes back to Babylon. He talks about the oracle, the burden concerning the wilderness of the sea, and this as windstorms and the Negev sweep on, it comes from the wilderness, from a terrifying land, and he's given a judgment against Babylon. And we don't take the time this morning, but if you went to Daniel, the book of Daniel, chapter 5, you would hear the story of the demise of Babylon and King Belshazzar. Belshazzar was having a, a party in his, in his opulence and his luxury and in his, in his self-imposed security of Babylon. And they're eating and drinking, and he has this idea, let's bring out the utensils from the Jewish temple that we destroyed years before. And so they, they're drinking and eating from the utensils of the temple of God in Jerusalem, and they're making mockery out of Jehovah God. And then you remember the story? Mini, mini, tekel, ufarsen. The handwriting on the wall. And he's in his drunken stupor. He's, his knees begin to shake. He grows white as he sees that handwriting on the wall. What is it? What is it? And old Daniel comes out and gives the prophecy. Mini, mini, tekel, ufarsen. This very night, your life will be over. Keep reading here in Isaiah 21. Verse 3, for this reason my loins are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered I cannot hear, so terrified I cannot see. My mind reels, horror overwhelms me. The twilight I long for has been turned for me into trembling. Verse 5, they set the table. They spread out the cloth. They eat, they drink. Rise up, captains. Oil the shields, for thus the Lord says to me, go, station the lookout. Let him report what he sees. And when he sees riders, horsemen, and pairs, a train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. And then the lookout called. Oh, Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower. I'm stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen, and pairs. And one said, fallen, fallen is Babylon, 
and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. See, in the midst of verse 5, the table set, the cloth spread, the eating and the drinking, the horsemen came. Fallen, fallen is Babylon. 150, 160 years later, that is exactly what happened, Daniel chapter 5. And Belshazzar died that night as the Medo-Persian Empire came and destroyed and conquered Babylon. 150, 160 years earlier, Isaiah wrote this prophecy. Is there any doubt that there is a God in heaven? And when he pronounces these oracles, these burdens against the nation, it's going to happen because no one frustrates his plan. No, when he plans it, it comes to pass. He's the sovereign God of the... God has a plan for the nations. And he's a plan one day to set up his kingdom on earth to which all the nations of the world will come and pay homage and worship and submit to him, the kingdom of his beloved son. And the question we're faced with every single day when we get up in the morning is, who are we going to trust for our day? Who are we going to look to? What, who do we put our faith in? Does it mean, folks, that we don't go out and vote on Tuesday? It's a primary. We're citizens of this country. Does it mean that we don't get up and we make our plans and, and, and we trust the Lord with them, though? Because I'm telling you, no matter who gets elected, it's a sovereign God of the universe has the final word. We have a president that's going to Singapore, North Korea. I mean, this is, this is um, monumental in 65 years. There's a sovereign God of the universe that's behind this. And we don't know what's happening. We pray. We pray for our, our leaders. We pray for world peace. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Let's, ne let's, not never, let's never lose sight of the fact that there is a sovereign God who is working out his plans and nothing or no one will frustrate it. And we can trust him with the grand plans and the, the mass um, events of our day and we can trust him for those moment-by-moment -moment things in our life. That's what, the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who is art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth. Lord, set up that, that throne in Jerusalem. May it happen, may it come. May thy kingdom come, thy will be done. May your son reign supreme in Jerusalem on the throne of David as you have planned. But then Jesus said, but also pray, give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us in the, in the daily needs of our life. Every morning, folks, we get up and we have to make a choice. Who are we going to trust? Who do we put our faith in? Vance Havner, the, the great old Baptist evangelist now with the Lord, related to the story of an elderly grandma, an elderly woman who was greatly disturbed about her, all her different trials and tribul tribulations of life, real or unreal. And finally, she was told very kindly by her family one day, Grandma, we've done all we can do for you. It's time that you just have to trust Jesus. 
And the look of horror that came on her face of despair. And she says, has it come to this? (laughs) Havner commented, it always comes to that. So we might as well begin with that. To get up in the morning and trust the Lord. Reminded in Philippians chapter 3 that our citizenship is in heaven from which also we eagerly wait for the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. May I suggest that as Christians, there are a couple of worlds that we live in. There's the now world, this present earthly existence. This is the world that we have to go and get up and Monday go to work or pay bills or go to school or earn a living, you know, get married plan for retirement, the, the, the now, the present world. But it's certainly a world, if you've checked the newspaper recently, that is full of danger and disappointment and disillusionment, discouragement, disease. The world that we're living in, the now world, bad things happen to good people all the time, every day. And good things happen to bad people all the time, every day. And it leaves us confused and dazed and wondering what in the world is going on. But this is a fallen world, and God is permitting it as a sovereign God. Ultimately, it's a world, according to the Bible, that the sovereign God most high is allowing Satan to have his dominion. But there's a second world. Our citizenship is in heaven. If you know Jesus as your personal Savior, what is more true about you is that you are a citizen of heaven. Defining, it defines us. It is where our future eternal existence is. It's with the Lord. And according to the Bible, it's a world that will be filled with incomprehensible joy. Delight in his presence the very presence of God, limitless satisfaction and joy. It's ultimately what we've been made for, that world that is yet to come. But we live in both those worlds, the now and the then. And that's where faith comes in. That's where faith comes in. Remember, faith is the substance of things hoped for. It's the evidence of things not yet seen. Faith takes that which is yet future, the glory that we will be experiencing, the reality of it that's there in the future, and it grabs it out there in the future and it brings it here into my daily living because I'm so assured that what God has promised he will perform. Faith living is living in light of what's to come, not just living in light of the now. The then perspective It's that eternal perspective. And Isaiah is simply calling God's chosen people in the 8th century B.C. to put their faith not in themselves, not in how they're going to get up in the morning and figure out life, but put their faith in a God who always, always accomplishes his purpose. And if Bible prophecy teaches us anything, that's what it teaches. God is true to his word, and when he says it, it takes place. So we put our trust in him. One Christian author put it this way, unbelief puts our circumstances in between us and God. Faith puts God between us and our circumstances. 
The first time that Florence Chadwick swam that icy waters of the Pacific Island, she didn't see the shore. And she gave up. The second time Florence Chadwick swam those icy waters from Catalina, she made it. And even though the misty fog had set in, and with her eyes she didn't see it, her eyes of faith saw the shore. And just a few more strokes, she knew land was there. How is it for us? In the frigid waters of life, in the misty, darkened, foggy world of the now, Isaiah is asking us, who you go to trust? Who you go to put your faith in? What is God doing right now in your life that is forcing you to trust him completely? What is he doing right now in your life that is forcing you to redirect your faith off of the now because you're coming to the conclusion there's no hope in the now. There's no hope in my planning. There's no hope in what I can figure out. I've got to trust him and him. Is it broken health? Then praise him for it and trust him through it. And don't lose sight of the shore. Is it a financial distress? Praise him for it and trust him through it. And don't lose sight of the shore. Grief, sorrow, some loss. Then we get up in the morning and we praise him for it. And we trust him through it. And we don't lose sight of the shore. Because as Hebrews 11.2 says, that's what pleases God. It gains his approval. And he looks down at his children. And he delights in people of faith. Let's pray. Our Father, remind us often, and you've given us your word, you've given us the body of Christ, people that can speak truth into our lives at difficult times. Can we take one more stroke in the frigid waters of life? Can we make it 10 more feet? And sometimes it's almost impossible. And so, Father, we, we need eyes of faith. Help us, Father, to examine how we're living today, to ask ourselves, are we putting our trust in other things? A safe bank account. Um, a politician. Our families. Are we putting our, our faith ultimately in you? Father, I pray that you'll increase our faith as you strip away um, those things that we seem to want to clutch at for our hope. Pry our fingers off those things that we may rest wholly and completely in you. 
I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.